Knockout Ginger, episode 51 with Vince DeFrancesco. Great bass player, great dude, prog rock librarian. We're both super stoked on the Mars Volta and Fender jazz basses, so buckle up for that conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Good luck out there. Visit therexshop.ca for some Rex merch. You love the Rex. I love the Rex. It's the center of the universe, and it's a great time to help out some local businesses. I've got the snapback hat and the hoodie. I never take them off. You can get pint glasses and beanies and all sorts of stuff. And it's free shipping in Canada. So check out directshop.ca. Thanks for listening. F all the haters. Recently, I've, I've gone down another... It happens periodically, like once or twice a year. And mm-hmm. I, I fall down like a Mars Volta one rabbit hole on the internet for sure so and i know and i know we this is kind of why i feel like we made such fast friends at school because of our mutual admiration of juan and volta and stuff so uh it'd be cool to talk about that or whatever i don't i don't really care whatever that that's a that's a great uh launch pad there seems very appropriate the can the canned lightning that was the mars volta the greatest band um it was a privilege to see a band like that oh yeah and i am eternally grateful that they were of my time it's like i mean for the past like i guess since college i also have been listening to a lot of like say king crimson and prog in general right but like king crimson like as an example is one of those bands where it's like you could (laughs) i mean it's really important for bands like uh like who jam live like they kind of have a different vibe live i mean the the studio recordings are one thing but then the live performances are like a complete other different animal and that's like the real beast of the band you know what i mean yeah it's like that's where the meat really is um king crimson is one of those bands where like they have like a catalog of uh um bootlegs that they've recorded themselves or that they've collected from fans that you can download on their website and it's like so many shows I wish I was alive for. And I feel like the Mars Volta was one of those bands where it was like, I actually got to see some of those shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a, yeah. like, like a piece of time. <laughs> like as, as an example, um, I, I saw them open for the Chili's. Yeah. At the, was it the ACC or the Sky Dome or where was that? The ACC. Right. Are so you the talking AC- about the Job for Shanti one? Yeah. So yeah, Cedric I was there, was, man. So Cedric was sick yeah. or something. That's yeah. what they said. And he never came out. And they just played like Sid Barrett tunes or something. For... They played, uh, I actually have the bootleg of that. I can give that to you. I would love that. It's uh, Interstellar Overdrive from the first Pink Floyd record. So like something like that in the moment, I was like, fuck, this sucks. Yeah. But it wasn't until after that I was like, that's one of those shows that no one will ever see again. Absolutely not. I mean, that like, 
I mean, it was kind of disappointing in, at the time, but looking back at it, it's like, holy shit, like, that's the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, are we on now? Are we doing this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, sweet. Okay, so you, you, you chopped this up and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So there's lots I mean, of outtakes. I'm, I'm not just, like, shitting about here. Um, but I, I leave in a lot of, sh- like, I try to edit it so it still sounds unedited, you know? Fair enough. So I'll probably keep this in. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, um, how, how many Mars Volta shows did I see? I seen. I saw, the, I think the first one was the, <clears throat> the one with um, Frushanti jamming because I remember being like, oh, I'm not going to get to see anything. And then my brother had tickets for the next night because it was like a doubleheader. Yeah. And then they played like a bunch of stuff the next night, right? Like they played like Day of the Bathmints and everything. I was wanting to to hear that because the record had just come out. That was 2006, I think. And the record, I think, came out in like the summer. And it was like, uh, September 2006, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, that was wicked. I remember Juan had a bass solo that night. Uh, the first time I ever heard Mars Volta, uh, me and my buddy in high school, we used to do this thing where we would switch iPods for a bit and like we would just shuffle each other's iPod. Just because like, you remember when iPods were like four gigs and they could only hold like a thousand songs. So after a while you got tired of it. So I remember in like one class, me and my buddy Brian, we'd like switched iPods and then Roulette Dares came on. That was the very first Mars Volta song I ever heard. It was Roulette Dares. It's a good and one. Yeah. Great entry point. <laughs> yeah, that song's killer, man. Like even like the that that outro with like some serious bass playing there. Uh that's Flea, right? Um anyway, I just remember I love this song like right away. And I just had to listen to it again and again and again. And then I remember, like, maybe a week later, I went out and bought uh, DeLaus and Francis the Mute on the same day. And, like, I've always been a huge Mars Volta fan since then. Or, like, when, when, when did you first hear them? Uh, around that same time. Like, I was probably in 10th grade. So, like, 2004, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, around that time. Yeah. Uh, a friend, I had a, I've had a bit of a. We didn't really have the same experience. A friend played me, I think, Televators. Oh yeah. And I was, I was like, ah, I don't think this is for me. Yeah. And then I heard a couple tracks later on, like some of that stuff on. I think. I think Francis the Mute, the stuff where like, there's that trumpet on there that that flea's playing. I think. Yeah. On. Uh... Miranda, right? Yeah. The first part? Yeah. And then I yeah, saw them cool. uh I saw them at the I saw them open for System of a Down at the ACC. Right. Around that same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that with uh Queens of the Stone Age? I don't think so. It was uh Bad Acid Trip, Mars Volta and system of a down oh cool i don't even remember who for some reason i'm thinking that juan wasn't even in the band yet was it Eva Gardner? Sure. it could have been 
or uh, they were touring with Ralph Jasso for like a couple months in 2003, I think, after Eva Gardner left, before they got one. So it could have been that time. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. And then <laughs> after that, it was like a, it took over my life. Yeah. And See, no, continue. Um, I was just going to say, I, I, I probably ended up seeing them seven or eight times over the years. Yeah. But yeah. What were you I say? don't know. If, I don't know if I saw them that many times. I think I missed like one night at the Phoenix or something uh, during like the Bedlam tour or something. I think I missed them that night. Like I was just, is that the one where he like climbed the wall or something like that? Yeah. He, I got hit with his, I was in the front row and Cedric hit me with his tea. He got splashed. It was awesome. His ginseng um, tea. <laughs> and uh, that's the time that they came and they played MTV, right? I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. They played like MTV the next day. And I remember I went because I didn't go to the show the night before. And we yeah. were like sitting in the slush for like an hour waiting for them to open the door. Yeah, that I think that that MTV set is the best vault I've seen live that was my favorite that it was pretty killer it was I remember like being like right up there you used the term earlier lightning in a bottle it was that was like lightning in seven and a half minutes that changed my life like lightning that was in the, a shot glass yeah it was it was the craziest uh, like that's my maybe the best show i've ever seen in my whole life yeah i mean I, I I don't know any other band with that type of sound that came out at that time that actually, you know, would get played on MTV. Like, or even get signed. Like, no. Like, or, or even sell, like, a bold record. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know any other band that was like that. Um, it It's awesome because it was, it was two languages, too. So, like, I guess European and... Uh, southern or central american audiences grasped onto it and we got it too because i don't know latin music's always a bit of a flair even in the english audiences right yeah but like i think that was part of it too they had they certainly had a character um i don't know man like it was just they were an unexpected band i think would you agree with that yeah I mean, and they, there was a, there was an element that, like, I remember old, people that were older than me kind of brushed it off as like, oh, it's, they just sound like Zeppelin or they just sound like Rush or whatever. Yeah. And uh, because like that, I guess it's that like Cedric's voice that makes you jump to those conclusions. But I see, I always saw it as like, they took all like the best parts of Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, King Crimson and Santana and like rolled it all into one. Yeah. And Larry Harlow. Larry Harlow for sure. Yeah. That weird like, like New York salsa thing. Yeah. And like one thing about the Mars Volta that's crazy is that they sound like nobody else. But when you listen to them speak about, say, their influences or the stuff that had inspired them in the first place you do start to hear that stuff come through. And I mean, I guess that's inevitable with anybody inspired by any other style of music that it'll, it'll come through eventually. 
But like at first glance, you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, uh, there's Circle Jerks in here or there's Larry Harlow or Fania All-Stars salsa stuff. Like the Led Zeppelin, King Crimson stuff, that's obvious. Like that's more of the hard-hitting like prog jazz rock stuff, I guess. That stuff's more obvious. Santana, because you got the congas in there, but like, I don't know. When you hear when you hear them talk about like their love for like say SoCal punk, I I don't really hear that until they talk about it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Like, so I mean, as eclectic as that music was, I did go back and listen to like other stuff that they were talking about. So say like I discovered Larry Harlow through them and the Fania All-Stars, Ismael Miranda and whoever else is on that label. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but uh, the punk stuff too. You forget about that. Like they did that Circle Jerks cover, right? You remember when they had the covers for Bedlam? I remember uh, not really. Circle Jerks cover. I was like, that's a bit of a left field. In my mind, I was thinking that. But then, like, you hear them talk about it, and, and then listening to, say, At the Driving or something, you can definitely hear it. It's just, how did they incorporate it into that music? I guess it's just the raw power, raw energy. I don't know. Because, like, punk is all about the rawness hitting you right in the face. I don't necessarily want to say instant gratification of punk, but it kind of is that way sometimes because it's simpler music, but it's harder to pull off live i think just because it's like you can sound chaotic even though it's everybody's playing kind of the same thing <laughs> and i've said this before but that somehow volta is like the rawest and also the most polished band at the same time like they're a band that is they're just like inside themselves in when they're playing yeah and then it's still also like i don't know like even just talking about this makes me so excited yeah like, just, I, like I, such um, an energy it wasn't even just like the omar uh the, the the mars volta stuff it was the omar solo stuff too like i'm sure you listen to that stuff right like yeah um xenophanes is one of the best records yeah 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 <laughs> i think Xenophanes, that's the first i think it's called Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. It, <laughs> it, it just looks like a Greek kind of spelling. Xenophanes. I don't know. Xenophanes could be anything. But anyway, know. like, yeah, that record. But even earlier than that, like, um, like uh, he has like a, a couple of um, records with John Frusciante where it's just like guitars and like synths and stuff that you can tell that they kind of recorded at home. That stuff got me good but like what i really liked was uh that um sedice bisonte no buffalo album yeah that one was like okay this is omar's sketch pad on a record do you know what i'm saying so it's like like even rapid fire toll booth became goliath but like you could hear it was like it was that music was a treat for a mars volta fan that you know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't the stuff that Omar was promoting at the top because he was working on the Mars Volta stuff. But, like, 
for anybody who wanted to deep dive into the music, like you could, you could get a preview from Ernest Volta music through him or his solo stuff or like the, the, the directions he was kind of taking. And at the time I was really interested in like, kind of like these like open vamp jams and Omar was super into that, I guess, like, cause he used to talk about listening to like Fela Kuti and stuff like that. And maybe try and put it in a rock setting is what I gathered from that kind of stuff. Like uh, there's one record called Omar Rodriguez and it's like, um, it's just got like five songs on it, but like they're just instrumental jams. Yeah. That's the yellow one. Yeah. The yellow one. Yeah. With like, like uh, 16 minute bass loops, (laughs) you know, like just trading solos and I don't know. What got me into Juan's playing though was like hearing Francis the Mute for the first time and like hearing say like the widow or some of the effects that he was using in like the Cassandra Gemini jam. Right. Like I, I got really into that. Like I mean, I think I I probably heard about the Mars Volta first through Flea. And then I probably listened to it and was probably like, what the hell is this? You know what I mean? And it took that iPod switching thing with my buddy to kind of realize, hey, maybe maybe there's more depth to the music than like I'm thinking like it's not just like far out stuff that Flea's a part of. I was like a huge Flea fan when I was starting. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like anything that he was part of, I was listening to. So I think I tried listening to the Mars Volta before my buddy gave me his iPod and I didn't like it. But then there was something about that one song that clicked, the roulette there's, I think I listened to like the, um, the EP that came out before that, the tremulant EP. (laughs) And I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't too into it. Cause I know that I think at the time they were saying that flea was going to record on the next Mars Volta album. So I went to check out who the hell is the Mars Volta anyway when the Francis the Mute album came out and I heard Wands playing on it, I was like, this guy is solid. And I mean, I think I was starting to get into Jocko at that time too. So like the fretless stuff on the widow was like right in my ear. And I just remember at the time, I think he had a lot of press and like, say like bass player magazine. I got into his playing a lot. That's like around the time I discovered Big Sur and stuff. I'll go as far as to say is like I, I didn't even want a fretless bass. Not even after listening to Jocko and stuff. I didn't want a fretless bass until I listened to Juan play it. I, I uh, Day of the Baphomets came out, and I yeah. ordered a fretless bass. <laughs> That's how I started playing bass. I just heard that, and I needed to. I just needed to do it. You started on fretless. Well, I mean, I was a guitar player, but okay. I just thought like, okay, I need to play fretless bass. Oh man. And now that's, that's not even like, I, I mean, I guess technically the upright is fretless, Yeah. but I don't even have a, like, I'm just not even interested in, it's just so not, I just learned over the years that a, a fretless electric is like, so not my voice that I just don't even. You don't like it playing? Is it is. No, I don't even have one. Oh, that's too bad. But, um. It was definitely the the first thing that grabbed, that pulled my ear in. And um, j- jumping back to what you said before about hearing the, like the effects and stuff that Juan was using, 
like I still use the same pedals that he uses. It's just like uh, it's oh, such yeah. a it's such a specific Yes, like um I think the first pedal I ever bought was the Digitech Synthwah because it had like a bunch of different effects on it. And it was like, I guess in my mind back then, if I was going to buy one pedal, it should have a couple things on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it wasn't a multi-effects pedal. It's just, you know, the green Digitech Synthwah. Yeah. You know that one? Yeah. I think I saw like Juan, that Juan used that in a magazine. And at the time I wanted an envelope filter and that pedal had an envelope filter in it. Like I said, I was like into fleas playing. So he uses an envelope filter a few times and I wanted one. So I bought that pedal, but there's like this, like one, like Moog style synth sweep on it, where it's just like, like, I don't know what the effect's called, but it's just like a, like a sawtooth type of filter sweep thing. Yeah. And I just remember like using that effect and then listening to the Mars Volta record, like over and over again and being like, Oh yeah, that's, that's the pedal. That's the one synth pedal I've got in there. But I wasn't too into effects until I listened to Mars Volta or one or something like I had a couple things. I had a distortion and a envelope filter. And I think I had a baseballs. That was it for like yeah. five years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like first five years of bass playing completely satisfied with no pedals, nothing. Like it's just weird how um, you can't live without them now or I yeah. can't. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I probably, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, most people would probably hear me and not even, I use them so subtly that most people would maybe not even think that I'm a big pedal guy, I think, at this point in my life. But yeah, they're so like, always what, there. What's like something that someone might be surprised to discover that you're using if you're using so, it suddenly? So, like, I'm using my, I have an octave pedal and it's, yeah, it's always on. Always but I turn it down like way down. So, so it's either it's, I, I put it, I turn it on and I turn it down low enough so I can only feel it. And I can't really hear it with my ears and it's always there. And then if I want it on, this is why the, the Tim, the Tim LaFave version is, has been so useful in my life. Cause it's got the two pedals and you can kind right. of go back and forth. But right. generally speaking, if I'm just using an octave pedal, I have the octave almost off. And then when I want to use it, I just bend over and I turn it up a little bit. Okay. So it's always there. The C, uh, CS2 is always on. Yeah. I even use that on my upright. Really? Yeah. No feedback? No. What's it sound like and on upright? It's, uh, I, but again, like back to this thing, like I use everything so minimally. Yeah. Like I like it on upright because I feel like when I, if I dig in a little harder, it gives me a little bit of like a saturation almost. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Almost, almost a distortion, but not really just like a subtle thing. Um, and those are the two that I, that's really, that's really it these days for me, octave and compression. Yeah. So I usually, I usually always have a compressor on. I always have, a, I always have a high pass filter on. Uh, have you heard of um, the Broughton high pass filters? Yeah. yeah. So I bought yeah. a couple of those. So I have 
two of them in my pedal board right now. So like one, I just keep at the front. That's the first thing I plug into is a high pass filter. And that's just that like 40 Hertz. All it does is cut out crap. You don't need right. Like the yeah. lowest note on a standard tune bass is 42 Hertz. So like if you cut everything below 40, that's normally what happens in the studio anyways. You know what I mean? So like, uh, I find the pedals track better. Uh, you get a bit more output because there's not low energy sucking some life out. Another thing I do is I have another high pass filter just before an effects loop that has delays and reverbs. And I cut off everything lower than 200 Hertz. So like any delay or reverb that I have on my board is only getting 200 Hertz and up. Mm -hmm. So like nothing lower than that. I'm not getting any like rumble in the reverb or anything like that. Like just makes it a bit clearer because I have it like in a loop where I add it in and I don't necessarily want, like, you know, if you add, like, if you put your bass through one channel and you have it going through a second channel and you turn up that second channel a bit, you're adding gain that isn't there. It's kind of like an illusion. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that. So I kind of take out all that low end. So I'm not blending in a bunch of crap, which is genius. Uh, Brilliant. It's all right. Like I picked that up from, uh, you know, uh, Steve Lawson, bass no. player named Steve Lawson. He's like a solo guy and he does a lot of stuff with reverbs and effects. He's always got like those striming delays on. So he's like got this big kind of soundscape type of thing going on. And that's what he said. He said, if you, if you cut out everything lower than 200 Hertz, you shouldn't really have a problem with reverbs or delays on the bass. So I tried that one day and it worked for me. So uh, I think this is why I like the, uh, this is why I use the CS2 for everything. Yeah. It just cuts out a little bit at the, at the bottom and it's, Right, just, right, right, right. I mean, I don't have to tell you about this, you know. Yeah, I mean, and it adds highs too. Yeah. It adds a bit of highs. Um, I modded that other CS2 a couple weeks ago so that that bass cut wouldn't happen. Uh, right. So what do you think about that? Honestly, the one thing I, I noticed about it is I don't have to have the level knob up so much. Before the mod, I was putting the level knob at like two or three o'clock. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like the sustain yeah. knob, I probably have like one or two. Um, but like, I didn't need as much output gain on the pedal. So I'm thinking like that mod that I did just allows more signal to come through. So maybe it's just like, I don't know. Uh, I changed a couple of the caps in there too. So maybe... I don't know. That that has something to do with it. That's one thing I noticed. I don't have to turn the pedal up as much. It does have more bottom end, and the highs stay about the same. So that was the mod. So it, it does sound a bit more clean, uh, more true, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But it still sounds like a CS3. Like it still like breaks up if I dig in and all that. Like it still has that 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 soft clip. Yeah. So like I use, I never touch the knobs. Everything's at 12 o'clock. Yeah. It's, and it's like, I don't, I like at this point in my life, I don't, I don't see, I don't see me ever, ever not using that pedal. Like it's just such a part of what I'm doing now. And um, it's like its own instrument almost. Yeah. And I mean, I remember 
I remember looking for one forever because Juan had one and he yeah. was like, he was always like, this is the pedal that I have to have. So I was like, okay, I got to get one too. And I remember like, I couldn't find one for like months, like looking up people on Craigslist and Kijiji and internet sales where they're all overpriced. And then I finally found a guy in Toronto that was selling it for like 65 bucks. So I bought one. And then like a week later, I found another one for like a hundred bucks. So like my brother uses one on guitar too. And it sounds dope. Like, like David Gilmore, apparently that's the only compressor he's, he uses. It's, it's unbelievable. Like, I don't know. It, that could be the greatest circuit ever constructed. Like it, it, it's pretty damn good. It's um, the best. Another one that's really close is the Dodd milk box, the DOD milk box. Yeah, have uh, you ever I've, seen that? I've never even seen it. No, y you can probably get it cheaper. Um, it has the same controls as a CS3, but I've heard that the action is just like a CS2. Like it actually sounds similar. It's just, they came out at around the same time, I think. I don't know. I've never tried one, but I've heard that. And um, is the milk box like this? Would that be the same era as like the meat box? Yeah. It looks like, you know, how the meat box looks like it's like painted, like to look like a steak. Yeah. 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 The, the milk box looks like a cow. Nice. Yeah. I'll have to look for one. Yeah. Actually, the compressor I've been using a lot these days is the Empress compressor. Nice. Uh, like the CS2 is one. It's like it's a whole it's a whole different thing. It's like you add a ton of flavor with that type of compressor. Like it's very colorful. Right. Like you got your distortion and your artifacts in that pedal, like especially with bass, because I think the bass just overloads it a bit. Yeah. But the empress is like a studio compressor it's like transparent as hell it sounds fat and it has a like way more adjustability and a blend knob so like i can slam it but then only put like 20 percent of the compressed signal in if i want so i think that that's cool and like if i slam it i can get a similar type of action to the cs2 but it's like just a bit more cleaner. I have both of them on my board. Mm -hmm. Like I love the CS2 for fretless. Like the the clean for some reason like like fretless to me doesn't sound very good with like too many preamps or like a tube style preamp. You need a solid state sound for fretless in my opinion. Mm. And the CS2 funny enough it kind of does add a bit of a tube quality to your sound, but I just have to have it on fretless. Like, I know that opinion might seem a little backwards. I, I find that the CS2 kind of breaks up a bit tube-like. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it's like, it's way more killer on fretless the way it levels it out. And uh, so I have to have it on my board. Um, it's also really good with a pick. Yeah. the pick playing like the pick comes right through and i almost never detect the artifacts so like the the and 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 i've also discovered recently like i'm not a huge pick player but like i've discovered recently like how much the thickness of a pick changes your tone like that that wasn't something i never thought about before like i just don't play with a pick that often so yeah. like i was always using like those two mil dunlop picks 
And that's mm-hmm. always like a beefy pick tone. I just thought, oh, you need a thick pick for thick strings. You know what I mean? But then like I got the 73, the 0.73 mil Dunlops and they sound way killer. Is that so the like, orange one? The yellow ones. Right. The Bobby Vega ones. Yeah. So like when, um, when I think of like, say like a, like a punk P bass tone, like I'm thinking like, say, I don't know. Like even something like Green Day or something like that. When I hear like a heavy like uh like Ampeg eight ten with a P bass type tone, it's actually the thinner pick. Yeah. <laughs> but I've always been going for that tone with the thicker pick, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the thinner pick, you get it right away. I don't know, it's just little things like that that change everything. But yeah, there's a video of Juan talking about this actually, about how he's using different picks for different things and um he changes them based on how much stamina he needs for a song. Oh. Which is something that, that I don't really understand, but, um, he might be talking about like the stroke distance. So like, if you have a thicker pick, this, like, I, I I don't know, but I'm guessing that if you strike the string with a thicker pick, your hand has that much less to travel with thicker pick. You know what I mean? Like what I was saying before is with a thicker pick, you get a thicker tone out of the bass. It sounds a bit fatter. So if you're going for a heavier sound, maybe you switch to a heavier pick and you're not using as much effort in your hands to get the sound out because the pick's kind of doing it. Right. And and also like those those thick picks tend to have rounded edges. So that might be where a bit of like the the clack is less on the on the thicker pick that that thick tone comes out i don't know what it is really but <laughs> the thicker yeah. pick does make a difference bob shields always uses the two mil pick and he's like you should use nothing less than a two mil pick <laughs> so i was always like okay whatever like i guess you need a thick pick to sound cool yeah <laughs> like like to this day my brother uses a two mil pick on guitar because bob shields sold them to that's funny and but he likes it, so I guess it worked for him. But like, <laughs> I remember for Christmas one year, I bought him a bag of two mil picks. <laughs> I'm on to uh, these bad boys. What's that? It's the Kirk Hammett Jazz Three. <laughs> really? It's changed everything. It's a little it's, pick. It's small and it's got a V in the back, so it doesn't spin. Yeah. And it's because there's the there's more. Um, the back's not round. Right. So I can, I can, I can be playing with it and then I can just like pinch it in my hand and then play with my fingers. It's like, it's very small. I can hold on to it. And, uh, yeah, it's the best. It's totally game changer for me. Yeah. 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 Like I've, I've actually done like a lot of, uh, I've tried to like get like some pick playing down. And one bass player that just impresses the shit out of me every time I hear him is uh, Ray Shulman from Gentle Giant. Have you ever listened to Gentle Giant? No, but I'll write it down. Okay, so Ray Shulman, well, Gentle Giant, they're like a a prog band from like, say, the, I think, early 70s to around 1980, I guess, is when they were around, but they were one of these bands that was like, they kind of had a cult following, but never really, they never had any like big singles or anything. That's probably why you've never heard anything, but 
<laughs> they're one of these prog bands that was like they were prog without writing like 10 20 minute opus songs you know what i mean like all their songs are like six minutes or less but there's like the, the format of the songs is sometimes wild the arrangements are crazy the instrumentation is constantly changing throughout one piece of music it's amazing and they're all multi-instrumentalists so like you watch a live performance of these guys the drummer gets up to play the the vibes the bass player puts down his bass to pick up a violin you know what i mean like all over the place but ray shulman is probably one of the coolest parts of that band like you listen to a song like um uh his last voyage it has this like bass intro and it's just like this melodic bass intro and it's just it's just perfect it's just like it's a song in itself this one little bass line but then he also has like really challenging songs say like um there's a song called the advent of penurge and the advent of penurge so penurge is spelled p-a-n-u-r-g-e and uh like you really got to hear this i accidentally started there's like a there's like an acapella section Yeah, that's it. Um, I just accidentally clicked on it when I wrote it down. Um, His last voyage, yeah. And then Advent of Prenurge, it's a, it's a bit more of a fleshed out tune, but like they have like these acapella parts where the, the lyrics are all interlinked and there's counterpoint and, oh man, like the band is just super impressive. Just listen to them. Like even just watch right. the live performances. You won't even believe it until you watch it. But anyway, Ray Shulman is the most monster bass player that nobody ever talks about like i know like in the last 10 15 years people have like talked about bobby vega as like the king of pick bass playing you know what i mean yeah but ray showman in 1970 71 72 was pulling off like crazy like alternate picking stuff like the economy picking things like on his bass like I don't know if anybody else was doing that before Ray Shulman or at the same time, probably, but like people around that time are always talking about like, say, Chris Squire or Greg Lake or something like that. Like Ray Shulman is like, he's crazy. If you haven't listened to Ray Shulman play bass, listen to Gentle Giant. He's absolute beast. So I've been learning a lot of his stuff on pick and it's just like the left hand stuff isn't too complicated. But then the right hand playing is like, if you don't have it right, you can't play the part. You know what I mean? And like, I'm not used to like doing upstrokes to go down. You know what I mean? Like to go down in pitch, he's doing upstrokes so that he doesn't have to travel so far to the next string. Do you know what I mean? Uh... So he's like... Oh, so he's like upstroking an open A so before he hits a G on the E string. Right. And he just comes down. I and see. he just follows through on the one stroke. But he does it so clean that like you can't even tell. And sometimes it doesn't even sound like he needs to do that. But the line is actually like pretty quick on the bass. So then when you actually try and execute it, 
you're like, oh crap, I actually do have to learn how to do it that way. You know what I mean? So like the tendency is to always learn something slower and then speed it up until you've got it up. With the Ray Shulman lines, you can't do that. You can't, you can't like, you can't slow it down, practice it slow because then you're practicing it wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like just because you can execute it slowly doesn't mean you're going to get it up to that speed because you're not having the correct pick pattern. So that kind of stuff throws me off. Right. You know what I mean? Like you, you can, you can practice it slow. That's what I'm saying. You can practice it slow, but as soon as you get up there, you realize you're not using the correct technique. You know what I mean? You need to do those upstrokes to get down to the correct pitch fast enough for that line that he's playing. No, it's just I have the tendency to play more naturally, which is just the up, down, up, down, up, down. You know what I mean? So like whatever, whatever note I'm picking, it's dependent on where it falls in the bar, if it's an upstroke or downstroke, right? Whereas Ray Schumann doesn't see it that way. He sees it as I need to do an upstroke here because that note needs to be hit quick, right? You know what I mean? So like normally my, my mind is like I'm going to practice it slow so I can play it and then speed it up. But as I speed it up, I realize this isn't the right technique. Right. Okay. I see. That's all yeah. I'm saying. So it's like Ray Shulman is one of these guys where he's kind of made me have to think about pick playing a lot more than if I was just to learn, say like, I don't know, some other song that's played on a pick, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, the song, uh, welcome to the pleasure dome by Frankie goes to Hollywood. It's just got a funky baseline. And I remember seeing them playing live on MTV one time and the bass player was kicking out this bass line and I just had to learn it. And it's just like this octave funk bass line. But that was like the first time I was like, oh, you can play funk with a pick. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, but like, it's nothing like that. You hear that? Yeah. <laughs> So like, I remember watching them play it live when I was like probably like 13, 14. It was on TV. And that was like the first time I was like, oh, I'm going to learn that with a pick. But anyway, yeah, like <laughs> Gentle Giant. I went through a bit of a phase with them a little while ago. But anyway, um, how did we get here? Picks. Uh, <laughs> fretless. Fretless with a pick with a CS2. Right, right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, that 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 was cool. Um, the other, we were talking about pedals, right? Oh, sorry. The one thing I wanted to jump back to was uh, this when we were talking about Volta, you mentioned um, kind of sort of getting into Volta at the same time that Juan was also getting some recognition in some magazines and stuff. Yes. And there was this whole, there was this whole like narrative through the base magazines that like the guy from Racer X was like coming out of retirement to play with these kids almost. Yeah. So, so even then I was like, oh, this guy's a legend. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And, and he's like, he, he's, he used to play in the fastest band on earth. And now he's playing with these weird kids from El Paso, Texas. This is the craziest thing I've ever seen or heard in my life like there was just like this extra like folklore behind 
Juan joining up with his band. Yes, that's a, that's actually a good point that you brought up the folklore. Um, Mars Volta is one of those bands that definitely has like fan driven folklore, right? Yeah. And I think the most like the coolest bands have that. So like in my book, Mars Volta is like one of the coolest bands. But uh, yeah, you're right. Um, Mars Volta is one of those bands that like I have to give them so much credit because because the sound was so abrasive. I guess for me at the time it allowed me to check out way more stuff than I was confident to like check out before. Like, I don't yeah. think I'd listen to like, say half the music I do without having listened to the Marzolta first. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I don't think, I wouldn't say that they were like, say like my introduction to jazz or prog, but they were one of those bands where it's like, I mean, everybody has these bands or artists that they spend a ton of time with. And it's not just like, you can look at your iPod or your record collection and say, I've got all this stuff. But at the same time, there's only going to be like five artists in there that like you spend like hundreds of hours on. Do you agree with that? Yep. So Mars Volta, during my teenage years, that was definitely one of those bands. Like I was only listening to like Red Hot Chili Peppers and Mars Volta pink floyd for like i don't know like a good three four years you know what i mean like i i nerd out i nerded out hard on the mars volta and i like i probably listened to them every day on the bus ride to school and the bus rides to even college i was listening to mars volta like i still listen to them i, I mean i think actually i spent like the last little while recovering some old stuff on my old ipod like my old iPod crashed like years ago, but I managed to get the hard drive out and put it into an external case. And I was able to recover like some old stuff I had on it. Sweet. Just like some of the old Omar stuff I hadn't heard in a really long time was all on there. And man, like <sighs> that music is so like empowering for me. It's like, um, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it was like that music was right up my alley. You know what I mean? And it was like as soon as I heard it, it was like the the green light for me in like certain ways. Like, I mean, like when I started playing bass, I thought that I wanted to be like Flea number two with the slap bass and the funk lines and all that kind of stuff. Like that's what I wanted to be when I was thirteen years old, and that's like what our band was trying to be, like Red Hot Chili Peppers number two. I, I'm sure you recall us pulling out a Chili Peppers cover or two back in the day right mm -hmm. but i think our band got really sick like i'm talking about bison here um i think our band got really cool when we started listening to the mars volta and started to try and make weird stuff i don't yeah. know like it was just like a it was really important it, music for me for sure it just it was like um for me it was totally liberating like the craziest up until the, I got into Volta, like probably the craziest band I was listening to was like Coheed and Cambria, yeah, maybe like, or I mean, I guess maybe Zeppelin if you count them as, but that's like a different kind of crazy. I mean, yeah. I mean, sort of like pushing, kind of like pushing the limits of of Prague or something, or like storylines and Prague and just like that whole 
yeah Led Zeppelin sort of. was always one of those bands that was kind of like on the fence with Prague yeah like I guess you and- can call them a Prague band and I think that they had originally were signed to Atlantic because uh Ahmet Erdogan thought that they were like a Prague-ish band and he was looking for other artists or whatever you know what I mean right and I think I even I'm I could probably say that I I I stopped listening to Zeppelin once I found Volta. It it was almost like just a placeholder until I found something that that hit me harder. Yeah, and I like, was like, oh, I'm, everything I'm getting from that, I'm getting from here, and also more. Yeah, like I remember when I was like getting into music. I mean, you always have like enthusiastic family members who are always like trying to like turn you on to stuff. Still, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm 32, and so, <laughs> yeah. my my uncle Paul, who who passed away a few years ago rest in peace he introduced me to like emerson lake and palmer and king crimson and stuff like that like he had those records sitting at home and he would show me and he would say like oh greg lake he's this bass player from emerson lake and palmer he was in king crimson he's crazy all these guys are like classically trained musicians they all went to university and stuff and that's where this music comes from and like it doesn't necessarily have to come from like the boarding school university mentality that a lot of those like English prog musicians came from. You listen to the Mars Volta and it's like, those came from like punk basement shows and somehow it still got there. So it made me feel really good. Like knowing that you could still get there. Yeah. But you didn't have to be like a, a high society plot. You know what I mean? Like, like whenever you, uh, if you ever read, like, say, like a biography on, like, I don't know, guys from like Genesis or something, they all went to like Cambridge University or Oxford or something like that. And that's where they met. And like, so they're all these educated guys that were making this really intelligent music. Well, that's kind of obvious that they're going to do that. But like, someone like the Mars Volta, like, it's a bit different. I mean, they were probably listening to that English stuff sure but it was just different and to my teenage mind i felt more of a connection to that than say some of the really accomplished stuff from more educated people i don't know if that was a thing or if it was a factor at the time i realize it now but in retrospect the mars volta was like a punk band like the most skilled punk band ever do you know what i mean like in attitude yeah, I don't sure. know. Like, there's there's like tons of bands that you could call punk in attitude or artists generally. Like, I guess Bob Dylan is a punk. You know what I mean? But we were talking about where does that punk sound fit into the Mars Volta when they talk about like, you know, going to Circle Jerks shows or or listening to Circle Jerks or the the Descendants or the Germs or whatever. Like, that's where it is. It's in the attitude and right. uh, sure in the aggression and stuff in the music, like an album like Bedlam that, that, that album smashes from back to front, but like it, it's not, it's not, um, it's not so hard to, to realize where all that music is coming from. I don't know. I just felt a, a closer connection to that music than say like, I, I, I hold the other, the other stuff is like farther away from me. Me too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like even jazz was like that too. Like I had to Sorry, learn I gotta, jazz, so it was farther away from me. I'll be back in one second. Sorry.
My bad. My nose is bleeding. <laughs> That's what the Mars Volta does to you. Yeah. Oh, Mike, you're going to have a lot of chopping on this episode. Oh, you don't even know. You don't <laughs> even know. My last one, uh, we went for four and a half hours just talking about ridiculous dumb shit. And you cut it down to how long? Uh, like... 50 minutes oh god <laughs> shit <clears throat> yeah man i don't know uh do you listen to much prog stuff not really fuck man the last couple of years i've just been going hard on it man like i've tried to listen to just every damn thing that i can and one thing that really appeals to me too about the whole prog, I'm talking like 70s prog, like not like leaders as animals or animals as leaders or whatever, that like the the new, I'm not talking about like the new prog, like periphery or something like that. I'm talking like the old school prog with like Hammond organs and shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the biggest subgenres is Italian prog. So like a big part of that for me is like, my my family are italian immigrants right so like one way for me to kind of connect with my heritage through music being italian is it's hard to get into italian pop music because most of it's just like really shitty and cheesy i mean i guess most of the buyers is too but for some reason italian just makes it extra cheesy like the language isn't it doesn't really lend itself to the english rhyming style <laughs> So like yeah. when you hear when you hear like rock songs in Italian, like you have to remember like the way that the languages are is like Italians start a lot of phrases on upbeats, whereas like English or German speakers are all like hard downbeats. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like uh, not No? I don't know. I, I Okay, I'm not so really like sure. uh like Italians always sound like they're starting a sentence with a pickup note, whereas we sound like we're starting right at the bar line. Okay, I know. Okay, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, yeah. It's not for every Italian word, but like it's common. So like I think I, I remember reading this that German and English, they have that like hard note, the 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 uh what do you call that note? <laughs> the on beat, right? <laughs> we we tend to enunciate with on beats, like the beginnings of sentences or words. Right. Right. So the number one, uh, the biggest market for English speaking music outside of English speaking countries is Germany. And they believe that that might be a factor the way that Germans hear English lyrics. I believe that I read that the way that English and German is announced, uh, enunciated or pronounced or whatever the word is for it, we use a lot of on beats. So the way that we put our rhyming schemes, our lyrical schemes in music is similar to the way that Germans would feel the music. Do you know what I'm saying? Whereas like when an Italian tries to put Italian lyrics on like, 
an American sounding instrumental, it doesn't work as well. Which is why the Italian prog genre sounds a bit different to me because there's more classical influence. And I mean, Italy's kind of always had a, a position in the classical world, right? Mm-hmm. Like Vivaldi and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, <clears throat> what I was saying about Prague is like, <clears throat> kind of like going back to that bottled lightning or lightning in a bottle can lightning type of era. You go back to like between 1969 and 75 in England or Europe in general, you were getting a lot of that Prague music. There's some fantastic music from that from those five years that's like what the hell happened it was like there was like a like a post Beatles wave that these guys were just influenced with like I don't know I don't know if it was the drugs if it was the the political landscape at the time I don't know but it could have been all those things and probably was all those things but it just contributed to this five years of like solid insane music coming out of England this prog music so you got like, I mean, you got like hit records like uh, Dark Side of the Moon and stuff like that. But like, there's bands out there that are like uh, a little understated these days, like Jethro Tull. Like, I feel like on the mainstream, some of that music is forgotten. And like, what I've been trying to do the past couple of years is like, really just try and discover like how great that music is. So like, um some of the tightest bands you'll ever hear come from the seventies in England. And I don't know what the hell it is, but it's just, it's true. Like the 1975 to 78 lineup of Jethro Tull is like one of the tightest instrumental bands you will ever hear with some of like the craziest songs. Like they have one of the Jethro Tull is an album called heavy horses. And that record is just insane. The first time I ever heard that record, I was blown away by the drumming, the guitar playing, the bass playing, the singing, the lyrics, the like just everything. The way that band jived together was perfect. And like <clears throat> that lineup, from what I remember, they were touring from like, say, 1968, pretty much with only a couple lineup changes. But when they added this bass player named John Glasscock, like that band kind of changed. It was like they became one of the tightest bands you'll ever hear. So if you listen to an album called Heavy Horses, like there's one song on there called uh, One Brown Mouse. And like, it's, it's a, it's, it's a pop song for sure. But the bass playing is so subtly amazing that I've, I've, I've had to listen to that song a hundred times over just because the way he links rhythmic elements in the lyrics with guitar lines and drum rhythms in the bass playing like the way he highlights all that stuff in his bass playing he like he like highlights all the elements or he, he's playing bass in a way that everything's being tied together absolutely perfectly and sorry what what song did you say to check out on that record uh one brown mouse all right. I, so I do this thing on the side where it's um, just because we often nature of the beast, we talk about music. So I 
I add a couple of tracks from things that we talk about to another, to a playlist. So people can just go and check it out if they want to. Yeah. So that's why I'm, that's why I keep slowing you down and writing all these things down. Oh, don't worry. Um, yeah. So I, I, for like the past two years, I spent a lot of time listening to Jethro Tull, especially the, like their seventies records. So like anything Aqualung and after up until I'd say around 1980, I think, I think Heavy Horses is the last 70s album. It was 78, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, but that record is just amazing. <clears throat> John Glasscock, he died after that and then they changed the whole lineup. He died when he was like 28. Like, He's in another band called... Uh, he was in another band before Jethro Tull called Carmen. And they have with an... A C? Yeah, Carmen with a C. And they have an album called Fandangos in Space. And it's like um, Spanish gypsy music mixed with prog rock. That's it. Um, so they have a song, I think it's called uh, Bolerias on that record. Just just that the whole first Carmen record, like... John Glasscock absolutely slays on it. If you ever want to hear like a P bass through an SVT 70s style with amazing playing, you, you listen to that record. Um, but that's another guy that's just like, you never, like, I, I would always get like Bass Player Magazine and, you know, spend like the hour, like a couple hours reading it when it came out and all that kind of stuff. I, I never heard of like some of these guys. And it's just like, why the hell? don't they talk about Ray Shulman? Why don't they talk about John Glasscock? Why don't they talk about John Wetton? Why don't they talk about some of these guys? And like, I don't know. That's one thing I guess that turned me on to prog rock is that nobody's really talking about it right now. So I kind of, I kind of see myself as like in my own little world, listening to like a, like a niche part of the market. I know it's not niche. I mean, like that stuff is tremendously popular, but nobody I know or nobody in my like immediate circle is listening to that right now. I, yeah, I mean, I don't listen to it. I don't particularly love there. There's definitely an element of prog rock that um, somehow the, somehow Volta just totally um, broke down the wall. But for me with pro with a lot of prog rock, it's like, um, I often just feel like it's too smart for me. So it feels like a bit of a drag sort of like, do you feel like it's pretentious or do you feel like it's just too much for you? I feel like it's just too much for me. Like for the same, like I don't listen to a ton of large ensemble music. I don't really listen to classical music. If there's a lot of stuff going on, I usually, I usually zone out pretty quickly if it's like sort of like a sensory overload type situation. Okay. So Um, let's, let's maybe see where like, like, Mars Volta, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they have tracks on their albums that have like a hundred tracks on. Them. Yeah. You know what so I, mean? I can't, so that's why I can't find where the, the actual disconnect is because it never happens with Volta. But I think, but what I, what I boil it down to is like what you were just talking about with the punk rock thing. And there's just such a, there's just such a raw element there that just goes right through. Like it's, you don't have a choice yeah i also don't have a choice i think one of the big big differences between mars volta being considered a prog band 
and then like the actual bands that are like from like the golden prog era like say like yes king crimson elp or whatever like why would you consider mars volta in the same umbrella as those bands well i can see like the the chaotic nature of the music or even the advanced nature of the music or the excessive musicality or whatever i can see why people would say it's prog and sure it does sound like that sometimes but what would make them different for someone like you to like that versus say king crimson or something i don't know um because the the first time i heard uh 21st century schizoid man and i heard that guitar solo i was like omar rodriguez ripped this off you know what i mean like i i don't actually think that but it was like omar's heard this before i could hear it you know what i mean or i feel like he heard that before so that's like where i kind of made that connection and it was like to me it was like this is like the stepping stone towards the mars volta right like led zeppelin's one of those stepping stones santana's one of those stepping stones king crimson's one of those stepping stones so for me i guess it was like i was picking and choosing the elements that i liked of mars volta and then hearing them in other people right and i guess i just got too deep into like the prog hole that i just i've been here for a while (laughs) but like um this is it's all uh see like you're making me want to listen to it though i i just when i go back and listen to these old records from the 70s like obviously i wasn't alive then and i don't know what the hell i should be feeling about that time but like i do get a vibe i i feel like because the world was different back then like it just contributed to like a different musical landscape so like i, I mean at the same time i'm also kind of like a history buff like aside from music like i list, I, I read books and shit like about history <laughs> like and and some sometimes historical relevance is part of the reason why i like a certain music the tv shows i like to watch and i don't know i'm just i i've i've always had this obsession with time like uh like traveling through time like if time travel could be a thing that would be like i think that would be the like humanity's ultimate um accomplishment would be time travel like even more than like space travel like to me space travel is way more tangible than like time travel so i think what i'm trying to say here is you know when you have like a really on gig and you get those like goose pimples at the back of your neck when the drummer hits the same rhythms as you or something like that and it's like everything's gelling and it's working like it should. To me, when I when I uh, when I was talking about that time travel business, those old records is the closest I think we'll get, musically speaking, anyway, to time travel. Obviously, like, but one of the greatest things I think we can have is these records capture whatever these people were playing on at that time and that's any record obviously it's not just prog records i feel i feel the time through the records 
And like, you can't capture that in a studio. You can't, it has to be captured on the stage. So some of these records is like, it's a reflection. You listen to the record, you listen to the live performance, and you kind of get a better understanding of that person's mentality when you compare the two.